You may have seen this news story. Take just a second and check out this 40-second clip. On behalf of the eight generations of my family who have been in this country, we're going to put a little fuel in your bus. The surprise of a lifetime. After receiving an honorary doctorate, the commencement speaker, billionaire philanthropist Robert Smith, shocking the graduates with an unexpected gift. My family is making a grant to eliminate their student loans. Paying off every penny of debt for the nearly 400 graduates. Cheers for the $40 million lifeline. For him to lift that burden off our shoulders, off our parents' shoulders, off our guardian's shoulders, like, we're at a loss of words right now. Did y'all see that? Did y'all seen that earlier in the month? What an awesome story. So Robert F. Smith, y'all catch the gist of it? Paid off all student debt for the class of 2019 at Morehouse College in Atlanta. Roughly up to, we're not sure, the, I'm not sure the total figure, up to potentially $40 million. Morehouse College President David Thomas said this was a liberation gift, meaning this frees these young men from having to make their career decisions based on their debt. Mr. Thomas said, listen to these words, this is, this is, um, this is well, no, I'm sorry, a little bit later. This allows them to pursue what they are passionate about. News of Mr. Smith's gift stunned the higher education world on Sunday. John Sylvanus Wilson, Jr., a Morehouse alumnus who was the college's president from 2013 to 2017, called it an extraordinary investment, and here's the phrase I wanted you to catch, that was simply an act of high grace. An extraordinary investment that was simply an act of high grace. Grace. What's your reaction to such a generous gift? Well, that was the reaction to the president of the college currently, the, the former president, and an extraordinary investment that was simply an act of high grace. I think that's the most appropriate response, but there were other reactions as well. Washington Post published an article entitled, Robert Smith Pledged to Pay Off Morehouse Graduate Student Loans. Is this fair to families who saved. One was quoted as saying, in a way, it's a slap in the face to the people who had to work, study, who had to do work, study, multiple scholarship, or whose family took the burden of paying the tuition without loans, one reader said. It makes their efforts look like they were in vain, if only they had taken loans. Those who took more loans than they should have are getting off, while those who only took the bare minimum Loans are getting less. Sorry, he says, if I'm not jumping for joy over this stunt. An act of high grace, some say, and others, a philanthropic stunt. The criticisms, I believe, reveal an entitlement mentality and a sense of fairness that is twisted by a skewed sense of personal responsibility and Justice. You see, John Sylvanus got it right when he said the gift was an act of high grace. And acts of high grace defy the categories of fairness and entitlement and perceived justice, don't they? Because they are, in fact, gifts of grace. 
Such acts of grace are simply gifts that their giver has the freedom to give as he or she chooses, right? This morning, we're going to see this principle at work in God who mercifully chooses to forgive and save some. We continue our study of the book of Romans this morning. We've been working our way verse by verse, section by section through the the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, his magnum opus, the greatest letter, no doubt, that's ever been penned. We've just come out of perhaps the greatest chapter in all of the book of Romans. Some have even said in all of the Bible, Romans chapter 8, that we read, part of which we read at the beginning of this Message. This letter we've seen is about the gospel of the righteousness of God. In other words, the the book of Romans is about the good news that holy God, who requires absolute righteousness from someone if they're to be in a relationship with Him, gives the very righteousness that He demands of us, He gives it to us as a gift to be received through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. And that's great news because all of us are the opposite of righteous. We're all sinners who fall short of the glory of God. We don't have any righteousness. The only way we could ever hope to have any and and have a relationship with God is if He gave us what He demands, and He did through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. We come this morning again to Romans chapter 9 through 11. We come into this section that is, uh, it's very interesting. It it seems somewhat out of place. It seems to be kind of stuck in between Romans 8 and and Romans 12. I don't have time to reiterate how we talked about that a couple weeks ago, but go check that out. If you take out Romans 9 through 11, you could just keep reading from Romans 8, 39 to Romans 12, 1. It goes from talking about the love of God, and then Paul in 12, 1 says... Therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercies, God's love, to present yourselves living sacrifices. Paul could have written the letter that way, but he didn't. He put chapters 9 through 11 right in the middle of 8 and 12. And the reason he did is to show us more about the mercies of God. So what we can know in these three very difficult passages, potentially the most complex passages, chapters in all of the Bible, this is where we are. So I say that for two reasons. One, cut me some slack because <laughs> this is where we are. Two, it's okay if you leave scratching your head because this is where we are. But he puts these chapters in there, and that tells us something about these three chapters. These three chapters, in all of their complexity, are about the mercies of God. This is a continuation of the discussion of chapter 8 about the love of God, and it's the precursor to Paul's exhortation uh, to, to give ourselves as sacrifices because of the mercies of God. So Romans 9 through 11 is clearly still a discussion of the love of God. As we begin to work through these chapters, do not, hear me, do not lose sight of that truth. Rather, let that understanding shape your hearing and your understanding of all of the beautiful yet difficult truths that we will see here. But what else is going on in Romans 9 through 11? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We had Father's Day sermon last week, so two weeks ago we were here. Paul's made it crystal clear that the forgiveness of sins and being declared righteous before God and becoming God's children, his heirs, and living forever with our Father is not about being born Jewish. Romans chapter 4 tells us that, but about trusting God's Son, believing by faith, getting righteousness by faith, taking it as a gift. Jesus 
who was sent to be our righteousness and to bring us redemption through his death on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead. But the question arises, what about the nation of Israel that, as a whole, rejected Jesus as the Messiah? More importantly, what about God's promises to the nation of Israel? How are we to understand the fact that although God made covenant promises to Israel, the majority rejected the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus? God's Son, God's Messiah, sent through the lineage of King David to be Israel and the world's Messiah. How are we to wrap our heads around that? Said in ask, asking the question another way, if God's promises to the nation of Israel have failed, as one could reason, as seen in their rejection of Jesus, then how can we as Gentiles be sure that God is even able to keep all the wonderful promises we've just been looking at and reading about in Romans 8 especially? Answering that question is Paul's purpose in Romans 9 through 11. In light of the nation of Israel's rejection of Messiah, how can we, believers, whether Jew or Gentile, how can we be sure that all those great promises you read at the beginning of the service in Romans 8, 28 to 39 are true and that God can actually follow through on those? Piper says of Romans 9, Romans 9 comes right after Romans 8 for this utterly crucial reason. It shows that the word of God's covenant with Israel has not failed because it is grounded in sovereign, individually electing mercy. Now here's a helpful overview of chapter 9 as we dive in. We talked about this last time if you were here a couple weeks ago. Let me just quick, quickly, how many of you were not here a couple weeks ago? For Romans 9, 1 through 13. Okay, so most of us were here, so most of us, okay. All right, we're going to be okay. If you weren't here and you're confused, just ask your neighbor after the service. They'll fill you in. They'll preach the sermon from two weeks ago and we'll be good. Romans 9 is a series of anticipated questions and answers about this issue with Israel that that we've been talking about. It's a series of anticipated objections and explanations. So, it will be important for your sanity today and probably another one, another couple of weeks, and probably as we get over in, into uh, 10 and 11, a uh, couple more months, and perhaps my safety, especially today, that you expect at the end of the service to have more questions than you had at the beginning. Can we be okay with that? Can you be okay with the fact that you're probably going to leave with bigger questions than we started with today, but that ultimately, not today, but ultimately we will answer them, the Scripture will answer them? Can we be okay with that? Because here's the deal. If not, then we need to lock the doors. You need water and coffee because we'll be here till about 8 this evening. It'll take that long to work through it in one sitting, so we're going to break it up. Again, well, I'm, at the end of this message, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to read your mind. I, I did it two weeks ago. It's amazing. I'm going to read your mind. I'm going to tell you what you're thinking in light of what we've been talking about for 30 minutes, okay? And you're going to say, wow, how'd you know that? And I'm going to show you in Scripture, it really wasn't me. It was Paul. It was God-inspired Scripture that read your mind. But we're going to leave you with that question, and we'll answer that question again uh, when we come back together next week. And then the next week, same thing's going to happen, more per- questions raised, left unanswered till the next week. Two weeks ago, we talked about living under sovereign mercy in compassionate prayer. We looked at Romans 9, 1 through 13, and we also looked at Romans 10, verse 
1. Here's what we saw. Every believer must live humbly under God's sovereign mercy in our world as we compassionately weep and pray for the salvation of all who don't today trust Jesus. We saw Paul's sincere anguish. He said, I, my heart breaks for, for, for my kinsmen, the, the Jews, the nation of Israel. It hurts me to the point that I would give my own salvation if God would save the nation full of unbelieving Jews called Israel that I call my kinsmen. I, I, I would give up my own. I'd go, to, I'd go to hell if they could go to heaven. An amazing statement of, of, of sincere anguish. We walked through and we looked at how deep the anguish was. We looked at why, because, because the, the text says that Israel is accursed by God. Those who don't believe Jesus was the Messiah, they're, they're accursed by God, and they're cut off from him. Paul said, my heart breaks. But Paul's heart didn't just break. His, his broken heart was moved to respond to his anguish with compassionate prayer. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, my prayer for Israel is that they would all be saved. I pray for those. And we looked at the fact, I pray for those who, like Acts 14, verse 19 says, stoned him outside the city of Lystra and left him for dead. By the way, those Jews, they came from neighboring towns. They took a trip to stone Paul. They went to great trouble to stone Paul. That's how much they hated him because he believed Jesus was the Messiah. And yet Paul says, I love those people, my kinsmen, so much. I would give my own soul for their salvation. And I pray, I pray. Because one day Paul was on the road to Damascus hating Jesus. Amen? Acts tells us, but before he ever got to Damascus, Jesus arrested his soul and saved him by grace and made the greatest persecutor of the church the greatest preacher of the gospel. And Paul says, I'm praying for my kingdom because I don't know who among them God will save, but he will save some. So, and then we looked at God's sure word, verses 6 through 13, talk about what, what we sometimes refer to uh, as the doctrine of election. Very simply here, it's, it's, it's spoken of here, uh, uh, this, this idea. So, so let's, let's read. Uh, we'll read in just a minute. John Stott says of these verses, God's promise did not fail. It was fulfilled only though in the Israel within Israel. There's the nation of Israel, all genetic Jews, right? All bloodline Jews. And then there's, scriptures teach in more than one place, more than here, the true Israel. The text says not all Israel is Israel in the mind and heart of God. Many mysteries surround the doctrine of election, Stott says, and theologians and pastors, I would say, are unwise to systemize it in such a way that no puzzles, enigmas, or loose ends are left. This comes from a, a scholar and a biblical, uh, a biblical scholar and theologian par excellence. He, 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 he did a lot of explaining of Scripture, but he, he recognizes a place for puzzle, enigma, and loose ends. I hope we find that balance of explanation and leaving some things that are mystery today. The key verses from last time were verses 11 through 13. Here's what they say. Though they were not yet born, speaking of Jacob and Esau, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, we didn't make up the word in theology class, it's in the scripture, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, 
She, the mother of the twins, was told the older shall serve the younger. That's right the opposite of how things work. God's making his choice here, and he's saying, I don't pick the older. Normally the firstborn son is the one that's the lead. I'm picking the younger one, Jacob. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And as we discussed briefly at the end last time, these verses lead to the objection that's in our hearts. I'm going to read your minds. Are you ready? Here's what you're thinking. Here's what you're feeling. That's not fair. You did, didn't you? Isn't that amazing? Again, but because he had taught these things before and, and heard all the questions and objections, Paul anticipates that in verse 14, which brings us to our text for the morning. You say, good Lord, what an introduction. Well, here's the thing. Trust me, if you didn't have that, you'd be lost from here on out. So just hang on. We're going to get there. I want to talk to you this morning from Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 18, about the righteousness of God in sovereign mercy and holy justice. The righteousness of God. The fact that God is righteous always, both in his sovereign mercy and in his holy justice. These, these verses are just that. Paul's attempt and, 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 and loctite argument to show the righteousness of God. That things like the doctrine of election don't mean God is unjust. That that uprising in our hearts and minds that says that's not fair is the wrong perspective when it comes to God. That's what he's going to show in these verses. And the take-home truth is this. God is righteous in dealing with some in sovereign mercy through the saving work of Jesus and in dealing with others in holy justice on their sin. Now, let's just go ahead and acknowledge what's clear. That's a hard saying, is it not? That's tough truth. You say, Chad, you're making that up? You get that out of the Bible? Uh, yeah, right here, Romans 9, 14 to 18, we're fixing to see it. But get your mind around that. God is righteous in dealing with some in sovereign mercy through the saving work of Jesus and in dealing with others in holy justice on their sin. Romans 9, verse 14. The last thing Paul said in verse 13 was, Jacob I loved, Esau I've hated. He chose Jacob before the boys were even born, before they had any time in life to do what was right, anything right or wrong. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? See, he knew what you were thinking. He knew what we would, would be prompted in our hearts by verses 11 through 13. That's not fair. By no means, Paul says. There's no injustice with God. For he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And you're thinking as you're reading this part, you're thinking, Wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, Pharaoh wasn't a believer. Pharaoh wasn't a, 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 a worshiper of Yahweh. No, you're exactly right. That's why he says in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, that is Moses, and he hardens whomever he wills, Pharaoh. Wow. Are y'all still awake and are you okay? You cannot slow down your mind. You cannot doze off or you're going to miss something big, okay? 
we got to fly, but we're going to dive deep here. Let's break it down. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part, verse 14, by no means? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. There's a couple of truths that we learn in verse 15 and have great need to remember throughout this whole discussion that will help us understand why Paul so quickly and emphatically answers our protest, is God unjust with by no means? The first truth is this. We must understand, according to verse 15, the realm that we're in in this discussion. We must understand this truth. Mercy is the opposite of justice, right? Mercy is not receiving what we deserve because of our sin under the condemnation of God's holy justice. And you see, when we begin to have discussions about injustice or fairness, are you with me? We're in the realm of justice, not the realm of mercy. Mercy is the opposite of justice. If God had chosen to deal with humanity only on the basis of complete and perfect justice slash fairness, hello, then he would have fairly and justly sent every last human being straight to hell because all sinners that fall, we're all sinners that fall eternally short of the holy glory of God. But God chose to have mercy on his elect and sent his son to secure their salvation by enduring the punishment they deserve. Mercy is the very opposite of justice. It is God not giving us what we deserve, not giving us what is fair and just, which would be eternal death and hell because of our sin. Do you believe that? Do you believe that because all sin and fall short of the glory of God, all believe, all deserve the just wrath of God? Because you see, if you don't, if, if you don't buy in there, if you don't believe that to be the truth, then, then the rest of this discussion will make no sense to you. But the reality is, if you know Jesus today, you believe that. That's why you turn to him. And if you thought you, if you think you know Jesus, but you don't buy that, you don't know Jesus, Okay? You need to kind of check up and see what's going on. See if you really understand your need for a Savior and what that means that you must have the righteousness of God in Christ. You see, the old hymn is amazing grace. Not, as we often react in these discussions about election, not amazing wrath. For it is grace that is amazing, not wrath in this world. Wrath is deserved. Wrath should be what we expect to get from a holy God. Wrath should have been what God did based on his justice, but God was merciful and gave grace and righteousness to us as a gift through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to be received as a gift by those who will, in his sovereign and electing mercy, receive it by faith. So, remember... Number one, we're talking about a gift of mercy. A gift of mercy. Not a deserved wage. For the wages of sin is what? Death. You know what, you know what the only thing you'll ever earn before God is? Death because of your sin. Everything else is a gift you receive. 
The next thing to notice here is that Paul is quoting in verse 15, Exodus 33, verse 19. I want to back up and read from that context, verse 18 also, so that we can understand all that Paul is inferring by his quotation of Exodus 33, verse 19. So here's Exodus 33, 18 and 19. Moses speaks to God and he says, please show me your glory. Very important that you understand what what Moses wants to see. He wants to see the glory of God. God, what is it that makes you God? What is it that makes you stand out from every other being in the universe? Show me your glory. And he said, God, verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. I'm, I'm going to show you my glory. What is my glory? It's my goodness and it's, it, it's, it's really my name, it's who I am. You, you see, the thing with God is, he is his glory. Are you, are you tracking with me? Like we, we, we all have attributes and characteristics. God's got attributes and characteristics. But what I'm trying to say is God himself is the highest beauty, the greatest good, the, the, the rarest treasure And I will be gracious, let me back up. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. I am that I am. A name that doesn't make sense unless you're God. Who am I? I am that I am. I'm self-existent. I'm independent from everybody. I'm God. There's nobody that can say I am that I am. Because we are all derivative beings, created beings. We have to, everything else in the the universe has to have an ultimate cause. God is that cause. He exists without cause and causes all existence. My name is Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom. I will show mercy. The second truth I want you to see from verse 15 is this. God's glory, his name, is his divine freedom to sovereignly, as he wills, the word means, grant mercy. Do you see it there in Exodus 33, 18 and 19? God, show me your glory. All right, Moses, I'm going to make my goodness pass before you. I'm going to tell you my name. My name is Yahweh. I am that I am. And who am I? I'm the one who will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I am sovereignly free, the only sovereignly free being in the universe. I am sovereignly and divinely free to sovereignly hand out mercy to those I want to hand out mercy to. I am God. You see, the godness, can we use that word? So it's, it's a word that, that Jonathan Edwards made up. The godness of God is, what is it that makes him God? It's his sovereign freedom to act from his own counsels and will, which are infinite and beyond human comprehension, because he is God. So remember, when we talk about unconditional election, when we read phrases like, He has compassion on whom he has compassion. He hardens whom he wills. First of all, remember, we're talking about the dispensing of mercy, not justice. 
But secondly here, remember this is God that we're talking about. Not some other man or woman we're talking about. And God as God has the right to be God. I mean, this is deep, right? Complicated thinking, right? God gets to be God. And can only do what he wills because as God, his will is perfect. Whether we understand it or like it or not, if he is truly God. And again, what is mind-boggling is the beauty of our God. Listen, that his heart is full of mercy and grace and love for sinners like us. That when he told Moses, I want to show you my glory, what did he point to? He pointed to his own grace. And he said, my name is Yahweh. I am that I am. And here's what's at the core of who I am. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I will be merciful to whom I'll be merciful. What a beautiful God. And so verse 16 says, Paul draws a conclusion from verse 15. Then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The salvation of men, women, boys, and girls, ultimate cause is what we're talking about. Depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, I am that I am, who has mercy, who is free to sovereignly dispense mercy as he pleases. Now are you okay? You see, this does not undo or do away with secondary causes. And the, and the secondary causes I'm talking about in this context are, th- are these. In, in another chapter, Paul is going to say, how can they hear without a preacher? They've got to hear the gospel to believe. And when they hear the gospel, they've got to believe. And all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You and I must preach the gospel to others, and we must hear and believe and trust the gospel ourselves if we're to be saved. And yet the ultimate cause behind all of that is not human will or exertion, but God who has mercy. Paul restates the truth of God's unconditional choice and election in light of his reminders of mercy and the very character of God. Salvation is from the Lord. And verse 16 is telling us this third truth. Election has nothing to do with the desires or works of its recipients. It is the sovereign act of the God of mercy. That's what 16 is telling us. You see, Paul really wants us, thinks it's important for all the believers at the church at Rome, he really thinks it's important, wants to make sure that we deal with the godness of God. And so he goes on to give another illustration from Exodus. But this time, not an example of mercy, but an example of God withholding mercy justly. Verse 17, 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in the earth. Paul reaches back to Exodus 9 here and, and pulls from the story of, 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 of uh, the, the, the Israelites in, 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 in Egyptian captivity. Moses going to the Pharaoh, asking him to let his people go according, you know, in, court, in accord with God's instruction. And as the text there says, Pharaoh saying no. Plague after plague until the tenth plague, right? You know the story well, don't you? And, and, and here what, what, what God is saying to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this purpose, that I might show my power in you. What power? Well, what, what ended up happening to Pharaoh? His nation was judged, right? His men were swallowed up in the Red Sea, that I might show my power in judgment in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. How many times throughout the future history of Israel did they look back to the Red Sea and tell the story again about what the God of Israel did to the Egyptians at the Red Sea? Over and over, word would get to their enemies ahead of them as they took the promised land about what God did at the Red Sea, that his name might be known in all the earth. Verse 17 is teaching us this simple truth, number four. God is just to withhold mercy. Again, stay with me. Justice is what we deserve, not mercy. Mercy is what we don't deserve. And so God is just when he doesn't give what we don't deserve. Are y'all tracking? And yet somehow in the church... We've come to the place where we expect that everyone deserves mercy. Right? Hello? Pharaoh deserved exactly what God gave him. Exodus says that Pharaoh also, it's interesting there, there's two different uh, phrases used in, throughout the book of Exodus, and they're both true. It says, Exodus tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and the text of, text of Exodus also says, as it does, as it's being quoted here, that God hardened his heart. Which is it? Well, you guessed it. It's both. You see, we are born. We've learned this. If you've been around for our study of Romans, you should know where, we're, know where I'm going with this already. We are born because of Adam's sin, Romans 1 through 3, and the curse that all after him will inherit with sin-hardened hearts under the just wrath of God. We have, as the prophet would say, hearts of stone that choose sin and would never choose God on their own. Romans 3, verses 10 and 11 say it clearest. None is righteous, no, not one. But listen to this. No one understand, hear it, no one seeks God. You know what's happening? If I'm seeking God, God's already getting a hold of me by His Spirit. He's already resurrected me from spiritual death. And so Pharaoh continued to harden his own heart of stone with sinful, rebellious choices. God hardened his heart by giving Pharaoh exactly what he was choosing, bound by his sinful heart. God hardened his heart by not stopping Pharaoh dead in his tracks like he did Paul on the road to Damascus with mercy. And because he didn't, he's no more just and righteous 
Again, in so doing, God is not unfair or unjust for Pharaoh and all of humanity deserve holy justice and divine condemnation and eternal wrath. And hear me, we would all continue to love sin and hate God and his son Jesus Christ were it not for his sovereign mercy given to those he chooses. Unless God mercifully takes out my heart of stone and gives me a heart of flesh, I would remain just as hardened in sin as Pharaoh did. Well, Paul wraps up this part of his argument for the righteousness of God and the sureness of his word in verse 18. He says, so then, he has mercy. God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. What's he saying? Don't accuse God of injustice. God is God. And he's the God who, contrary to to, to the justice that should have happened, actually extends mercy through the life, death, and resurrection of his son for the sake of the elect. He didn't have to show mercy at all. And yet, he is the God who is gracious to those to whom he will be gracious and has compassion on those to whom you'll have compassion. John Stott puts it this way, is God not unjust to exercise his sovereign choices? Verse 14, no. To Moses, he stressed his mercy, verse 15, and to Pharaoh, his power in judgment, verse 17. But it is not unjust either to show mercy to the undeserving or to harden those who harden themselves. Both mercy and judgment are fully compatible with justice. What's Paul trying to get through to us? God alone is God. Don't think you have the understanding to be able to or somehow need to in order to make the universe right again, tell God how to act. That's what Paul's saying. He hasn't ever needed help being God. I am that I am, he told Moses. He revealed his glory. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. But that God, holy God, shows mercy is earth-shaking. It should be mind-boggling to you this morning. And the wonder is not that God doesn't show his mercy to everyone because everyone deserves his wrath, but that he shows his mercy to anyone at all. John Stott again, it's just helpful what he says. If therefore God hardens some, he is not being unjust, for that is what their sin deserves. If, on the other hand, he has compassion on some, he is not being unjust, for he is dealing with them in mercy. The wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anybody is saved at all. For we deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment. If therefore anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. This antimony contains a mystery which our present knowledge cannot solve. Loose ends, enigmas, mysteries. And it is consistent, but it is consistent with Scripture, history, and our experience. And right there is where we should leave it. Amen. It is these truths that that perhaps are the explanation for our lack 
of ecstatic joy in Jesus. We really don't believe we deserve wrath. We've heard the good news so long that we've forgotten why it's so good. And we actually have begun to think, I believe in the church in America across the board in particular, that we deserve mercy. That God would be bad if he didn't give mercy. No, God would be fair and just and holy and righteous as he's ever been. And yet that God, who could have done that, showed mercy. Again, the take-home truth today, God is righteous in dealing with some in sovereign mercy through the saving work of Jesus and in dealing with others in holy justice on their sin. Remember Robert F. Smith's gift? Remember those student loans we saw at the beginning? God's gift of salvation to his elect is infinitely more amazing and generous and eternal and merciful. Because here's the deal. Some of those arguments that people came up with, those protests against his gift. By the way, I mean, my kids worked their way through college, through undergrad, without, without debt. I, I can kind of identify maybe with that. Wow. You know, you, you, you get a sense of entitlement. It, it comes up. But God's gift of salvation to his elect is infinitely more amazing and generous and eternal and merciful because no human being can claim to be deserving or worthy or even wise enough to save work and avoid loans before holy God. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory and the wages of the sin of every person is death. That is what we've earned before holy God. So if you're tracking along, then you probably at least had this thought. So... Uh, this is this is point where I read your mind and then show you in Scripture where it wasn't me. So, this is what you're thinking. God is completely sovereign. What you're telling me, Chad, is God's completely sovereign over, over who, who trusts in Jesus and is saved and who is not. It all ultimately, you're telling us today, based on Romans 9, depends on His choice. In fact, that's a, that's a, that sounds a whole lot like that. Uh, one of those verses, doesn't it? It's not about human exertion or will, but God who has mercy. Yes, that's what I'm telling you. Well, if that's what you're telling us, Chad, then, then, then why does he hold anyone accountable for anything? I read your mind, didn't I? But only because Paul anticipated what we'd be thinking. Verse 19 and 20, I'm reading it. This is where we're leaving off. This is a question I'll leave you with. Paul said, you will say to me then. <laughs> right after he says, God has mercy on him, he has mercy. He hardens whom he hardens. You will say to me then. Here's how you're going to respond to that. Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? If God's that sovereign, Paul... Then why do we still answer to him as our judge? How can he hold us accountable when he's the ultimate cause of all things? You know what Paul says to that? Verse 20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? You know what verse 20 means? 
verse 20 means that verse 19 is a bad question. He actually gets things right in verse 19. The objector gets things right. No one resists God's will. God is absolutely sovereign in mercy and in justice. And yet God is and will be your judge. You see, I don't know how it all goes together. That's not for you to know. But it's for you to deal with. It's for me to accept the fact that God is God. And at, the, at one and the same time, he is sovereign in justice and in mercy. And yet he calls you to hear the gospel and to believe the gospel. Well, we'll pick up with Paul's answer next time. Three implications for our lives as we go. What does election do for your life? How should it affect your life? You ever had, you ever, by the way, you may have heard this, this part of, the, of any of a message ever on election. Y'all ready? You need to write this down. I'm serious. Election will move you in worship. Remember? Romans 12.1, in light of God's mercies, in election, give yourself as a living sacrifice. So what does that look like? Three implications. One, this morning, if you do not know God as your Father, then I want to call you to trust the mercy of God in Jesus now as your only hope. One chapter later, in Romans 10, verse 9, Paul will say to us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You say, again, I can't put all this together in my mind. Which is it? Does God cause my salvation or do I cause it when I trust the gospel? Yes. And and, and don't get so intellectual and, and, and don't, listen, don't, Try to pretend before the God of the universe that you can deal with his logic. Just respond to his clear word. Amen? What that means is I accept his sovereignty and mercy and justice, but when he says believe in Jesus, I run to Jesus with all my heart. So if you're here today and you don't know him as Father, call on him today, right now, as your only hope. Secondly, if you're God's child this morning, And a lot of what we've been learning about this morning, this doctrine of election, this truth of God's sovereign mercy, prayerfully purge your heart from any inkling of boasting before God about your relationship with Him using the humbling power of the truth of God's unconditional election of mercy in your life. That ought to be the soap that scrubs all self-righteousness and pride and arrogance and any kind of boasting right out of your heart. That's what the doctrine of election does for us. And the way we know that is 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 31, where Paul says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that... As it is written, here's where it always ends up for us as believers. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If the doctrine of election doesn't make you worship Jesus and brag on Christ and thank God that he so loved the world that he gave his son, then you misunderstood the doctrine. Thirdly and finally, 
The doctrine of election ought to move us to remember and obey Jesus, your Savior's last and great commission. And I added this part since I made the slide. And be, be confident in the success of the gospel. You need to remember the great commission. And you need to be confident that when we fulfill the great commission, it'll work. In Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus said, And this gospel of the kingdom, listen, will be preached in all the nations. Why? Because God will move his church to go and take the message to the ends of the earth, to the Ansari people of Bangladesh. God will raise somebody up to go. You and I ought to be asking him, is it me? Here am I, send me, in the words of Isaiah. Holy, 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 you've given me salvation. God, do you want me to go to Bangladesh and take the gospel of Jesus to those people? I'm yours. Is it me? But God will raise somebody up and he'll get the gospel to the unsorry people. So that as Revelation 5, 9, and 10 says, there'll be a day like John saw when he looked and he heard the elders crying out, worthy is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, who has purchased by his own blood people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Well, you, know, you, know, you know what Romans 5, uh, Revelation 5 is about? God got the job done, and he showed John. There'll be a day when there is a church collected from the world, from every nation, because God will have gotten the gospel through an obedient church. When Jesus said to go make disciples, we went in his power, and he was with us. We're fixing to read it together. He never left us. And people from every people group in the world will be around the throne forever. How can we know that for sure? Because God is sovereign in mercy. And those whom he foreknew, these he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those he predestined, he also called through the preaching of the gospel. Those he called, these he justified, these he justified, he also glorified. Salvation is of the Lord. Would you stand with me? As we read in closing, together out loud. I want you to read so I can hear you reading it. The great commission of our Lord. You see, the sovereignty of God in justice and mercy does not undo the responsibility of us, his church to faithfully obey the last thing Jesus said when he was here on planet Earth about preaching the gospel to everyone. You do understand that it's a secret who God's elect are, and it's God's secret with himself. This is how we're to live our lives. Read it with me. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, if we don't do that, 
We can swim in Romans 9 all day long, but if we don't do that, we're disobedient to the last words Jesus gave, the last commission he gave before he left. And so what we do is we believe Romans 9, and we get to work, according to Matthew 28.